Good morning, church. Uh, we're continuing in this Advent season, and uh, this week we're focusing on love. The, uh, the subject for this week is love. And it may seem initially as if it would be easy to preach on the subject of love, but once you start to think about it and try to organize some thoughts, I realize that it's just such a vast concept that it's very difficult to know where to start. So when I was thinking about this this week, I thought, well, I know what I'll do is I'll simply go through every verse in the Bible that talks about love, and then hopefully that will give us what we need. So in the New International Version, we have only 551 verses that talk about love. So we should be finished probably by Tuesday afternoon, if that's okay. <clears throat> Obviously, I'm not going to subject you to that. So when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, what I'll probably do is look at three things, three things that I'd like to share this morning that might help us to gain a bit of an understanding about love in this uh, Advent season as we approach Christmas. I thought I'd look briefly at what is love, what does it look like, and what should we do with it? What is love, what does it look like, and what should we do with it? Before that, let's just commit it to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity to gather around your word. We ask, as always, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be present amongst us to open our understanding speak to us directly through your word in your precious and worthy name. Amen. So then, what is love? Sounds like an interesting question, an easy question. But love, I think, is something we all know what it is. But I think it's very difficult to actually come up with words to define or describe what love is. As an exercise, I looked at a dictionary, an online dictionary, and I put in the word love to see how the dictionary would define love. And their best effort was a feeling of warm personal attachment. A feeling of warm personal attachment. Now, for me, that doesn't get close to describing what love is. It's far more than a warm personal attachment. And I came to think this week that when you think about love, and particularly love in the spiritual realm, the love that God has for us, love is actually too profound and deep a concept to really for the human vocabulary. That's probably why that dictionary definition comes up short. A lot of people over many years have struggled to describe or define what love is. Doing my research this week, I was reminded of a song that was in the charts in 1993. It was called, What is Love? And I thought, well, that would be an interesting. I'll look, I'll look up the lyrics of that song, see if, if he had any great insights in that hit song. 
didn't help me very much. It seemed to consist mainly of the singer singing, what is love, baby don't hurt me. I think once again, that leaves us a little short of understanding what is love. Somebody else who struggled with this was Prince Charles in 1981. I'm, I'm sure a number of you have been enjoying the television series, The Crown. And while I believe that some aspects of the latest episodes of The Crown have attracted some criticism because perhaps they've used a bit of poetic license or they're not entirely accurate, there was one particular episode which did, which was accurate, and it showed how when Prince Charles announced his engagement to Diana Spencer, and they were before the press for the first time, I think, as a couple, and the reporters were asking them questions, and one of the reporters said to them, are you in love? And the interview is still available online now, and, and when the reporter said, are you in love? Diana responded immediately, of course. Charles then added something along the lines of whatever love, being in love, actually is. And it betrayed, perhaps, a lack of understanding of what love was. It certainly, perhaps, should have sent, set a few alarm bells ringing at the time. One response was instant, of course. The other was, well, whatever being in love means. So trying to understand what love is. I came to the conclusion this week that it's about commitment. Love is more than just a warm personal attachment. Love is more than just a fear of being hurt. Love is something that generates a deep, profound commitment and engagement. If that commitment is not there and not instantaneous, then perhaps it's not really love. Perhaps when asked if you are in love, if your answer is of course, then you are. If your answer is, I'm not sure what love means, then perhaps you're not. Commitment, engagement, instant. Do I love my wife? Yes. Do I love my kids? Yes. Do I love Birmingham City Football Club? Yes. Do I love treacle sponge? Heck, yes. Treacle sponge is an old English dessert, and if you haven't tried it, then your life is not complete yet. Do I love asparagus? Well, that's a tricky one. I mean, I like asparagus. I don't dislike asparagus. I eat asparagus. Would I particularly order asparagus? Would I be disappointed if my meal didn't include asparagus? No. I'm kind of like that about asparagus. I don't love asparagus. Love is about something 
If love exists, it motivates you, it commits you, it is an important, a critically important thing in your life. And, it, and the Bible confirms this because possibly we could argue for a long time about what is the greatest verse in the Bible about love. But I would say as a strong contender, it's John 3.16. John chapter 3.16, which you all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The key word in that verse is the word that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's love was such that it generates a deep, profound commitment. Because God loved the world so much, he had to act. His love had to produce action. And that's what love does when it's present. It produces commitment. It produces engagement. It produces action. It produces fruit. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe on him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. It's commitment. It's engagement. And so for any of you who in these difficult times in which we are living are feeling a little bit lonely, a little bit anxious, a little bit afraid, a little bit isolated, the wonderful news for you this morning is that God loves you. And because he loves you, there is a that. He loves you so much that He wants to bless you. He doesn't want you to be afraid. He doesn't want you to be concerned. He doesn't want you to be anxious. He doesn't want you to be lacking. He wants you to come to him with your fears and anxieties and concerns so that he can bless you. Hallelujah this morning that God loves us and cares for us and knows our circumstances. God's love produces a commitment and an interest in our lives. It's a truth that is so profound, it's difficult for us to fully comprehend it, that God loves us. So that's what love is. Love is a deep commitment, a deep engagement. What does love look like? How do you mean, what does it look like? Well, we might know what something is, but we might not actually have seen it. As a silly example, I know what the Yeti or the Bigfoot is, but I haven't seen it. I know what the Loch Ness Monster is, but I've not seen it. What does love look like? Some of you will be familiar with what is known as the duck test. The duck test has become a cornerstone of what is known as abductive reasoning. The duck test holds that you can identify an unknown subject by observing that subject's individual characteristics. So by observing something, you can deduce what it is. One of the first people to encapsulate this idea was a a poet, an American poet and writer called James Whitcomb Riley. 
He lived in Indiana in the late 19th century, and he said this. He said, when I see a bird that walks like a duck and swims like a duck and quacks like a duck, I call that bird a duck. That's what it looks like. And so if we apply that same abductive reasoning test to love, we should be able, by observing our own behavior and observing the behavior of others around us, we should be able to deduce from our behavior and their behavior our characteristics and their characteristics whether or not there is love being displayed. James Riley used the examples of how it walked and what it sounded like. How do we recognize love? Well, Paul basically set out a series of things for us to look for, a, a series of characteristics, a series of things that must be present if love is present. And he, wrote, he included those in his letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a very famous passage. It's read at almost every wedding. And I just want to read just two or three verses from verse 4 through to verse 8 of 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul wrote this, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Those are things that Paul said must be present if love is present. Fifteen things. We could play a little festive game now for a moment, if you like. In your head, not out loud. I don't want to cause disruption in the home. But we could play a little game. We could run through these 15 things that Paul talked about. And we could play... Score your spouse out of 15. Or score yourself out of 15. When you think about the relationship with your spouse and how you treat your spouse or treat other family members or treat anybody that you love, is it true that in your relationship you're patient? Are you patient with your spouse, with your loved ones? Are you kind? Paul says, if you love someone, you're kind to them. Love does not envy. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. If you win the family game of trivial pursuits, are you humble or do you go on a lap of honor rubbing your victory in the noses of those you love. Love is not proud. 
Love is not rude. Are we sometimes rude or short with people we're supposed to love? Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Do we get angry too easily? Here's a good one. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Has anybody who's ever been married for any length of time ever used the phrase or heard the phrase, you know, you always do this. We can't use that anymore. Paul says that love keeps no record of wrongs. You can't say you always do this. That's looking back. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Always. Always protects. You know, some years ago, we, my wife and I were driving back from somewhere, and it was late, and I realized we'd got some low tire pressure in one of my tires, in the passenger side tire. So we pulled into a gas station in uh, El Segundo, just about midnight, dark, and the tire pressure machine was in the far corner of the lot with a, a wall this way and this way. So I pulled in, and I got out of the car, and I went around, and I crouched down, and I was checking the, eye, the tire pressure, putting some air in the tire. And my wife's in the passenger seat, and she's rolled the window down, and we're having a chat while I'm doing the tire. And behind me, it's just a, a dark bank with lots of thick vegetation. And while I'm putting the air in and while we're having a nice chat, suddenly we both hear a really loud rustling in the undergrowth immediately behind me in the pitch black. And as I heard the rustling, I saw the car window shoot up. <laughs> Instinctive reaction, I'm sure. I'm sure my wife would have leapt out and done battle with whatever it was if it had come out of the undergrowth. But that instinctive reaction, the, the window went up, and I've never let her forget that. <clears throat> love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love is always hoping. Love always is looking to see and hope that things will happen. And Paul says, love always perseveres. Do we persevere? with the ones that we love. I was trying to think of an analogy for persevering. And I thought perhaps that persevering in love would be if you ask your spouse to go to the grocery store and you give them a list of things to get and, and your spouse goes off to the grocery store and returns 45 minutes later and He's got most of the things on the list, but he's forgotten, say, two, and two of, two of the other things he has got, he's got the wrong one. Perseverance would be just to smile sweetly and say, never mind, next time you go, I'm sure you'll get it all correct. That would, that would be perseverance, I think, with, with, with somebody you love. I mean, they, you know, they didn't do it on purpose. You persevere. And then Paul says, finally, love never fails. That's an interesting statement for Paul to make, isn't it? 
that love never fails. Love doesn't grow cold, Paul is saying. Love shouldn't wane or die. Love never fails. So that's why Paul is saying that's what love looks like. It's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil, it seeks truth, it always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, never fails. And so every one of those characteristics, every single one should be present in our relationships with those that we love. Thirdly and lastly, we've looked at what love is. We've looked at what love looks like. What should we do with it? As Christians approaching Christmas in this Advent season, having thought about love, what should we do with it? Well, the answer is we should pay it back and we should pay it forward. Jesus makes this very clear in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 from verse 34. Matthew 22 and verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What I love about this passage is that if you go back into the few verses before, there's a story of how the Sadducees approached Jesus. They didn't believe in resurrection, and so they came up with a question designed to trick Jesus about what would happen if a man married seven wives, if each wife died but he married seven times, and who would he be married to in the resurrection? The question was designed to try and trip Jesus up, to make him look foolish in front of the crowds who were listening to him. And Jesus gave them an answer that basically completely sidestepped their trickery and made them look foolish. And what I like about this passage is that there were a group of Pharisees there, and they were chuckling, and they were looking, and they said, well, these, these Sadducees have just been humiliated by Jesus trying to trick him. You'd think the sensible response would be just to keep your head down, but no, these Pharisees, they got together. They said, we want to come up with a question now, because we want to trick Jesus. I guess they thought if we can trick him where they failed, it'll make us look more important than them. So one of them who was an expert in the law. There's always a lawyer involved, isn't there? And I am one by background and training before any lawyer gets annoyed. And this lawyer was an expert in the law. And so he came up with this question to Jesus and said, Master, which is the greatest commandment? I mean, what a ridiculous question. They're all commandments. They're not optional. So it doesn't matter 
what order you want to rank them in, they're all commandments. But Jesus threw him because in Jesus' answer, he didn't refer to any of the commandments probably that this lawyer expected him to refer to. He said instead that there's a new commandment. He says here in verse verse 34 of, of 32 that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And then the second commandment is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. This, Jesus said, these are the two greatest commandments. And he went further and said, on these two commandments hang all of the law and all of the prophets. What are the two commandments? Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. So the first part of that is saying that this love that God has demonstrated, this love that God has given to us, this love that speaks of a deep commitment to us, this love that has all of the characteristics that Paul described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this love that God has given to us, we need to pay back to him. We, live, we love him because he has first loved us. So love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's how we pay it back. That's how we pay it back, by loving God. But just for a second, let us, let it sink in how committed God expects us to be in the way we love him. We must love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. Does that describe the way each one of us loves God? Is everything we do and say supportive of us loving God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind? Let each one of us, as we approach Christmas, ask ourselves this question. Does our love for God pass the asparagus test? Remember? Asparagus? Meh. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. That's not love that consumes your whole heart and soul and mind. That's what God demands of us. It's all-consuming. It's every moment of every day. It governs and informs every thought we have, everything we look at, everything we pay attention to, everything we do must be informed by a deep, committed love of God. The second thing we have to do is we have to pay it forward. And that's the second part of what Jesus said in Matthew 22. That we must love our neighbor as ourselves. That means that we should not treat another person in a manner that we would not want to be treated. We should not say something to another person that we would not want to hear ourselves. We should not do something to another person that we would not be happy to have done to us. 
And that starts with us as Christians in this body, in this church. That starts with our fellow believers. We are told that we should love one another. John chapter 13 actually says that is how people will know. Jesus said in John 13, that is how people will know that we are his disciples because we love one another. We talked this Wednesday in the men's Bible study about staying away from what the King James Version calls vain babblings, not getting caught up in arguments, in arguments about things that really are not significant. And that's so easy to do, to get caught up in arguments. Somebody has a different political point of view or whatever you, what have you. You get into an argument, a dispute, and before you know what's happened, a relationship has been broken and may never get repaired. We need to love one another. Even, even those people who perhaps might irritate us. But you know, Jesus actually took it beyond having a love for fellow believers. He said, you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. And elsewhere in the Gospels, when he said that, Somebody said to him, I think it was another lawyer, said, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus responded by telling the story of the good Samaritan. And that was a powerful story because the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Samaritans. But it was a Samaritan who tended to the injured man. After two priests had gone by and left him on the side of the road, a Samaritan saw him, had compassion, and tended his wounds. And Jesus said, that's your neighbor, the person you don't know, the person you've just encountered on the street, the person who is in difficulty and in trouble, that's your neighbor, that's who you have to love. That's how we are expected to pay God's love forward. We pay, love's, we pay God's love back by loving him with every ounce of our being, but he expects us, he demands that every single day we pay his love forward by demonstrating love in the way we act, in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we conduct ourselves, in the way we interact with people around us. It's not easy. It's not easy. But at this Christmas time, as Christians... As we reflect on how much God loves us, let's look into our own lives and see how much we really love Him. And when we've done that, and when we've corrected any attitude that is not correct, and we start to show Him we love Him properly, then we have to start paying his love forward so that we are different, so that we are compassionate, so that we are warm, so that we are all the things that Paul talks about. We are patient, we are kind, we are long-suffering, we are not selfish. That is how we should be with everybody with whom we interact. Because that is how we conduct ourselves as ambassadors of Christ, and that is how we attract people into the kingdom of God. Amen. Let us pray.
Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for all that it contains for us. Father, we thank you so much that you love us, each one of us. We can't begin to understand that, Lord, but we say thank you. We say hallelujah this morning. We pray, Lord, you would cause each one of us to examine ourselves, to see how much, Lord, we really love you and how much we demonstrate that. And we ask, Lord, you would help us to pay your love forward and to, because of our love for you, Lord, that we would bless every person with whom we come into contact. In your precious and worthy name, amen.